Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Anna, and I'll be reading today's scripture for us. It comes from Mark 8, 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called to the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Amen. Good job. I paid a lot for that education. Just letting you know one day she's just going to continue on and be preaching. So just for those of you who are like, just letting you know. Today we're looking at uh, an incredibly important set of scripture. It's often called the war of myths, if you will. And as you know, ideas and stories and myths can get perpetuated and get accelerated even more in today's world with social media, with blogs, news channels, sermons, all sorts of things get passed on. But this isn't a new thing to humanity. You know, for, for thousands of years, there's been books and stories and written things and oral traditions that have passed on thoughts and ideas. And in this time, in this section, in this verses, we see kind of a challenge with that. All of these things can tend to get accelerated even in our family of origins, what we grow up believing and why do we believe those things? And they get passed on from, from person to person. I think part of that um, is also why there's an assault on what I would say a biblical literacy, if you will. A truly understanding of this is what Scripture means and how do we know what it means and why. Um, as Danny said to you guys, we, we uh, put all these things on your seats We've worked uh, really hard on putting together what we call, um, a it's a digital course on biblical literacy. Now, what it is not is me talking to you about all of the things the Bible means. What this course is, is an introductory of how to read and understand the Bible, how to bring um, integrity to that, how to understand, like when I'm reading Scripture, how do I even understand this? Like, how do I know what it means and what it doesn't mean? So we've put together this course 
Um, it's like uh, short teachings. There's, I don't know, nine or ten sessions within it. It's not just me talking for hours. But it's a course where you can watch it at your own pace. But we desire that everybody in our church goes through this. Because to understand what the Bible is really for, it's to know God. The Bible is the story of God. It is God's story. Well, we make it out as like the Bible was written to me. The Bible wasn't written to you. The Bible is written for you, but it's written to original audience and people to understand the story of God. And then to know the story of human history from God's perspective, to shape us as the people of God. So who is this course for? Uh, it's for people who are new to the Bible. It's also for people who are incredibly familiar with the Bible. They even call themselves students of the Bible. They think they know that everything in the Bible. People who aren't sure how to read the Bible. It's also for people who are sure how to read the Bible. It's for people who've been coming to church for a long time or a short time. Did I cover everyone? Okay. I've taught this course before in different settings, and I would say seminary students came out of the course and were like, that would have been helpful. Like months before, well, they're in seminary. I've had brand new believers take this course, or so the teachings that we've done, and like, I've never known that before. So we encourage you to go through it. This is your guide. Um, I think it's going to develop a foundation for us to at least understand we teach Scripture and the authority of Scripture. But we also, I think it's important to understand in, in this, these verses this morning can kind of be a paradigm of that. We bring all sorts of thoughts and ideas that we're currently carrying around, and we bring those into the Bible and telling God, this is your story. When God's like, actually, this is my story for you. So we wanted to share that with you and then continue on today. And you're going to see even how I use the things that I talk about in here to bring meaning to even what we're going to talk about today. But like I said at the top, this, these verses, this understanding, this part of it is really the war of myths. So what have we seen so far in the book of Mark as we've dove into it at different times over the past year? We've seen this gospel to be a gospel of authority and deep empathy. We've seen these things about the authority of Jesus. We've seen authority in his teaching. We've seen authority to forgive sins. We've seen his authority over nature. We've seen his authority over the spiritual world. And we've also seen his authority over disease. We've also seen Jesus show a deep, deep empathy and compassion to the hurting, to the disabled, to the sick, to the poor, to those who couldn't help themselves. Those reliant on other people for their basic needs that so many of us would just take for granted. These are also people who couldn't hide their need. It was obvious. In fact, those who could hide their need, he often spoke against. Those would be the religious leaders that looked good on the outside but really hid what was going on. As to those he opposed... But those who just were honest because they couldn't hide it anymore, to them, Jesus showed amazing compassion and empathy. But in these verses, Jesus makes two really clear statements, and I want you to journey. Today is like a teaching, a, a biblical teaching or understanding these verses. But I think these verses are such a key for so many things. The first claim he makes, 
The things that he says is, who do you say I am? And the second thing is, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. We'll look at the first one today. The next one is next week. But we see these really pull together. This part of uh, the book of Mark, which is Mark telling Jesus' story, and we believe that Mark actually interviewed Peter. Peter was his main source for so much of this, and it's fascinating. No matter how like, outgoing and like, confident Peter was, Peter was the one who told Mark, there was a time Jesus called me Satan. If you were doing like a self-promotional tour, you probably wouldn't lead with that. The Son of God called me Satan. Even though that title of a book would be intriguing, I wouldn't advise it. Jesus starts to talk about his death. This is the climax of Mark. This would be, if you go to musical and plays, right before intermission, there's this like a, a climax moment. Like, what are they going to do? It ascends. It's like all of a sudden the curtain drops. It's intermission time. This is that moment in the book of Mark. Jesus starts talking about his death. He's not sick. He's not uh, feeling the pressure. He's not just giving up. He's preparing for his kingdom come and for his will to be done. So let me show you some scripture. He says this, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The first statement Jesus says here, now grab this, the Son of Man must suffer. The key word there is must. Jesus is like, I must suffer. It's not like, well, I'm kind of being overwhelmed and, and I'm getting pulled down, but no, I must suffer. Now, when Jesus refers into himself as the Son of Man, he is partially talking about his humanity and as you'll see in biblical literacy, when we see things, we're like, where else in Scripture does it say this? It's mentioned a couple places, and Paul mentions this, uh, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and fully human in every way, and that's true. But this word son of man comes from actually a prophetic thing spoken about 500 years before Jesus even came in the book of Daniel, well, they're referencing a son of man as a title of total authority. It wasn't like Jesus just showed up. He'd been talked about. Real quickly, in the book of Daniel, he writes this. There before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominions is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's some pretty powerful words. And so his disciples probably knew these words as a prophet of Daniel was a significant guy. So when Jesus is now saying, I am that person who will have dominion and authority and power. What do you think the disciples thought at that moment? Amen. They probably were excited. 
the guy they've been hanging out with for years now, just 12 of them, is the Messiah. And then he says, but I must suffer. They knew that this Messiah would come, put everything right. It's what they longed for and prayed for. This is not new information for a lot of you. So what's the problem? Why is Peter rebuking him? Have you ever rebuked Jesus? I knew there wouldn't be an answer when I asked that rhetorical question. So Peter's rebuke simply is around Jesus is saying, this is what I must do. This is what I'm doing. This is what I have for you. This is the journey you're on. A modern-day rebuking of Jesus would be, this is my journey, Jesus. This is what I want to do. You're just going to join me in it. You're like, wait, how is that rebuking Jesus? We'll get there. Because that's the concerns of men and not the concerns of God. That's the measure there. Is this a concern of man that I am telling God he needs to be a part of it? Or am I saying, God, what are your concerns that I may join you in you? Let's pull back. Jesus brought his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi. This is the beginning of the verses that Anna read. Here's a map of that. It's at the top of the map. He's kind of pulled them out of town. Whenever Scripture mentions a location, especially in the Gospels, it has some significance to the original readers, if you will. It kind of like be saying, Jesus took his disciples to Vegas. That means something to all of us. We're like, huh, what's he doing in Vegas? Hopefully he's shutting down the proposal for the A's new stadium so my team doesn't leave me. (laughs) And all of that. But there's a reference point we all might have. Jesus went to this place. We're like, oh, I kind of get what's happening. Caesarea Philippi was this place that used to be called Bellinus because the people worshipped Baal there, which was like, the old, like an Old Testament god. It was also seen as the birthplace of Pan, which is the Greek god of nature. And up on the hillside, there was a marble temple built for Caesar, which was the godhead of the Roman Empire, the rule of the world. He was regarded as a god. So against that backdrop, Jesus is like, let's go to where all the gods were worshipped. And I'm going to ask you something significant. Here stands Jesus, a homeless Galilean carpenter, against the backdrop of all the religions and all of the history. And he says this, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say one of the prophets. They share some of the rumors, some of the ideas, some of the feedback they're getting. Here's what people they're saying. What about you? Maybe there was some silence, and Jesus might be looking at him right in the eyes. Not in a condemning, shameful sort of way, but just, what about you? Who do you say I am? We're not told if there was a pause, but I'm guessing there might have been a little bit one at this point. Peter, what we know of him, speaks up. Peter answered, you're the Messiah. Peter realized what he had always known deep in his heart, that Jesus was something different. But just like many of us, 
It was deep-rooted expectations. What are some of the deep-rooted expectations that we have? Only you can really answer that. Here's God, what you should be doing. This is who Jesus should be. God, if you love me, or if God is love, or what are these things, fill in the blank. What are they? This statement of Jesus, the Son of Man must suffer. Never before this moment, at this time, the original disciples in that moment, nobody thought the Messiah was going to come and suffer. While it was true, there's some Old Testament prophets talked about this servant in the future would suffer, that they realized after this, after Jesus died, where they look back and were like, oh, that's what Isaiah meant. But nobody thought this Messiah that was coming was going to suffer. Jesus, what are you talking about? It's kind of like if you're watching a movie, like the modern-day readers read this and are like, yeah, of course Jesus suffered. What's wrong with Peter? It's kind of like if you're watching a movie with a friend and you've already seen the movie and they haven't seen it yet, and so they're kind of, they're like enjoying it or not enjoying it, and they're probably asking questions, and you're like, you're not supposed to know that yet. But the worst is like when you haven't seen it and someone else says, oh, this is the best part. You're like, shut up. I'll determine what the best part Right? So often we read scripture as the one who's already seen the movie, and we look at Peter and like, Peter, how did you miss it? What is wrong with you? And then we go, would we have been any different? Because from the time that Peter was really, really young, all he heard, the Messiah was going to come and make things right. This word must is indicating that Jesus is planning to die. He's doing it voluntarily. He's not just predicting it. He's telling them. There was a lot of myths perpetrated. There was a bunch of writings between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're called the apocalypse writings, like the unveilings. They're not scripture. They're just myths and stories. And a lot of these writings would talk about this future Messiah and what he was going to do. So this influenced the whole generations of people. It talked around how there was going to be tribulation and wars and great suffering. And then Elijah was going to come back. And he was going to talk about be this herald for the Messiah. And then the Messiah would enter. And he was described as a great superhuman figure crashing into human history to remake the world and the end and vindicate God's people. Could you see a little more about how they might have missed it? And so Peter's like, wait, this is what I've always heard. This is what I've always believed. And so Jesus says these things, I must suffer. And Peter's like, hmm. Now, let me pull you aside, Jesus. You're doing really, really well. You know, we got a good thing going. I don't know how you're healing people, but that is really cool. That thing you did with, like, bread and fish, unbelievable. Like, I, don't, I could eat for days. Like, if you could do that with, like, sushi, you know, and, like, fried chicken or, you know, other things, steak, that would be fabulous. Like, 
that would be a cool miracle. Jesus feeds 10,000 people with one steak. Like, I'm in on that. But Jesus, this whole suffer thing, you've got to be wrong. And then you're telling me I need to pick up my cross? Dandy's going to talk about that next week, but that's a horrifying image. In modern day, it'd be like, pick up your chair of execution and follow me. What is going on? You see, myths and stories, they penetrate deep into our bones. Peter was pretty close. You are the Messiah. But there's a but. We have these stories of how a life should be lived and how a person should think and what God really does think. Stories are powerful. There's an article written um, called The Stories Connect and Persuade Us. They quote uh, Professor Dr. Melanie Green. She says this. Stories can, broader ad, broad, can alter broader attitudes, like our views on relationships, politics, the environment, messages that feel like commands, even good advice coming from a friend, aren't always received well. If you feel like you're being pushed into a corner, you're more likely to push back. But if someone tells you a story about the time that they too had to, act, had to end a painful relationship, for example, the information will likely come across less like a lecture and more like a personal truth. A vivid emotional story can give that extra push to make it feel more real or important. If you look at the, most, at the times somebody's beliefs have changed, she says, it's often because a story hits them in the heart. What stories are hitting you in the heart? Compassion and empathy is an amazing thing. But let me just tell you something. The enemy doesn't just use blunt, gross lies. He uses stories. He uses things that hit your heart. And you're so close to saying Jesus is the Messiah, and there's a but. When the Son of Man declares, the Son of Man must suffer. Peter brings everything that he once thought and believed and says, I need to change Jesus. Because he's not just a bit off. What does Peter do? He actually becomes the mouthpiece of Satan as he continues the myth that was passed on to him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And that's it right there. Am I passing on the concerns of God or Am I perpetuating the concerns of humans? Here's a dialectical interplay of the verbal struggle, in case you don't see it in the verses. Peter, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus silences Peter. Jesus, the human one, me, must suffer. Peter silences Jesus. Jesus silences Peter. 
Jesus, Peter is Satan. That's literally what is happening right there. We're so like, well, he didn't really mean he was Satan. He didn't really, he's gonna, Jesus is saying, this is why. It reminded Jesus of a lot of things. It brought to mind maybe a war, the war of words that he had with Satan uh, or with the scribes when the scribes actually said to Jesus, you are the devil. You're a demon. There's a demon inside of you. Maybe it reminds him of the war of myths with Satan in the wilderness. If you know that story, what does Satan use to have a battle with Jesus? Scripture. But Scripture out of context. Maybe it was uh, points to a fierce contest raging in the ideology and around Mark's community, what they believed. Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him. It jumped out at Jesus what was happening. Someone's pulling me from my father's plan. I don't want to die. Jesus in his human form wasn't like, man, I just can't wait to die. He didn't want to die. He didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to go through the pain. That's why he's in the garden sweating blood. Anyone who's like, Jesus just wanted, like he, he was always okay with his father's plan. I encourage you to read the Bible. I encourage you to read the interaction with him and his father when he says, is there any other way? But Jesus being the suffering, loving servant says, I must do it for you. It could be said this way. This was the devil tempting him again to fall down and worship him, to take his way instead of God's way. It is a strange thing and sometimes a terrible thing that the tempter speaks to us in the voice of a well-meaning friend. Man, that one hits me hard. The temptation is to us to look outwardly and go, who are these friends that are doing this to me? I think God's also asking us, are we the well-meaning friend who are pulling people away through our, through our myths and stories or saying, you know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, Jesus really doesn't think that about that. What we're seeing in front of us is an enactment of a parable. Not too long before that, Jesus gives this conversation around a farmer who sounds like the worst farmer of all time because he's just throwing seeds everywhere, right? If, if you're planting a garden, you're probably throwing them on the soil. This guy's like, I'm just going to throw them everywhere. And there's this point where the farmer, it says, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. And as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. This parable is right before us in this story about Jesus and Peter. Because how does Satan take away the word? He uses myths. He uses stories. He uses ideologies. He uses being woke. He uses near and partial truths. Satan uses this. He uses human concerns over the concerns of God. And I think if nothing else this morning, if we could leave with that, even that as a guide as you're feeling and these, these things in our heart that are pressed on our heart, is to bring those before God. Is this a human concern over the concern of God? 
What's beautiful about God is that God cares about what we care about. But when we flip it and go, God, you must now do this. He's like, why would I? It's not just him wanting his way. It's like your way is, is inferior. Like, why would I allow my child to go down that path? This path. And it's from this point forward in the book of Mark, we see everything flipped upside down. We see God's way over human way. We see the suffering Messiah. We see that the kingdom belongs to kids and people like them. We see that loving God and loving others is the way of the kingdom. It's all changed from this point. So when Peter says, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. If Jesus in that moment said, yeah, you're right. Because Jesus had all the authority. Jesus could have brought the heat. Jesus could have brought the armies and said, you're right. I like that option better, Peter. I'm going to be the Messiah you want me to be. What if God answered our prayers according to what we wanted? We would like that in the moment, but life would fall apart. What if we sat here today and said, well, Jesus was this guy and he brought the heat and he destroyed everybody. But what if he actually, instead of that moment, actually would be cool if he actually died for everybody and rose again so that we're all different? The truth is, if if Jesus responded to Peter's cry, we wouldn't be here today. The cross would mean nothing. The resurrection would mean nothing. And we'd still all be dead to our sins. That's a sad moment. It's a sad thing to think about. Sorry, that one hit me a little bit. I guess I was listening to myself. I, I, I just think of all the times that I've told God, this is what you need to do. And this is how you need to do it. And my, and my vision is about this big. Praise be to God that he's like, that's nice, Dale. I still love you. Come snuggle. And then I keep doing it, and he's probably like, okay, get behind me, Satan. And I'm like, no, I'm not Satan. He's like, yeah, but coming out of your mouth is like, you know, this whole thing. And I guess as I got, it's not just an age thing, but I guess as I kept being broken and admitting I'm a broken man and failed, I'm just tired of it. I think it's that. I think it's not just like you get older and you, I just think I just became more honest about my own brokenness and my own failures. I realized if I could just flip, God, what, do, what are your concerns versus mine? And then I start going, man, this wife is way better. Yesterday, Lisa and I celebrated our 34th wedding anniversary, which is, yay. I always get some. She's, she's slept in today, so she's, she's on summer break. Summer Lisa has arrived. The day doesn't start till about 10 or I don't know when it starts. She's probably watching. Hi, Lisa. I'll make lunch today. Sorry. And I, the reason I say that is that we often take time just to talk through life, how it's been. And I can look back to the first few years. Man, I knew everything about marriage. I thought I did. You know, man, I, Lisa, you are so fortunate to marry me. I am an expert in marital relationships. 
And then you hit year five and you're like, you hit year 15, you're like, dear Lord, I knew nothing. And then at year 30, I just go, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you for marrying me. You know, I don't know why you said yes. And she's like, I don't know either. Well, here we are now, you know. But one of the things that we do, we just say, God, we are so thankful that the things that were pressing on our hearts at different times, you just said, no, I got you. I got you. And when you have a faithfulness with God for a period of time and it goes for decades, you can go, he didn't fail us then or then or then or then. He's not going to fail us now. And that's what I want you to hear. But as you move forward and go forward, if you pull back all the way what Scripture says, there's two significant times where the phrase, I am, shows up. And they're both moments that change the world. Moses meets God. God's in the form of a burning bush. God's like, I need you to go get my people out of slavery. And Moses says, who do I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And as Jesus turns in his story of the book of Mark and is now headed to the cross to change the future of humanity, to give an offer for all of you to be right with God out of nothing that you've done, but everything that he's done, you deserve to be on the cross. And Jesus goes, let me join you on that cross and actually let me take your place. He says the same thing. Who do people say I am? My friends, everything that should move us forward when the most difficult things are ahead of us, when life is so hard, if we stop and just go, I follow the I am. The I am is with me. The I am gives me power and strength. I'm taking the I am wherever I'm going. When Jesus went to the cross and died to pay, for the, pay the price for our sins, he won through losing. He achieved our forgiveness on the cross by turning the values of the world on their head. He did not fight fire with fire. His authority was not shown in protecting his life. It was shown in giving up his life. He didn't come and raise an army in order to put down the latest corrupt regime. He didn't take power. He gave it up, and yet he triumphed on the cross. Then the world's myths and glorification of power was exposed for what it is and defeated. The spell of the world's myths was broken forever. May we not be accelerants of the world's myths. But may we accelerate the king of glory, the suffering servant, the son of man who died and rose again for you. Let's pray. You sit for a few moments of just quietness before God. pretty easy to answer if, if uh, Jesus was to look at you today and 
says, who do people say that I am? And we can say all sorts of things. And if he was to look at you and go, well, who do you say I am? It's pretty obvious that Peter gave the right answer. And he believed he believed it according to what he thought. So I guess we just need to lay down like, man, I, I believe you, you are the son of God. And maybe Jesus' follow-up question for you this morning is, okay, so what are your expectations of me? Are they right and good and true? Because if I promised them in the Bible, you can count on them. Bring them to the bank, you can count on them. But if you're holding me to things that I never promised, if you're holding me to things I never said, it's on you. That would be the concerns of man over concerns of God. Holy Spirit, come. Work in our hearts and minds. God, I pray you free us from the chains and vices of expectations, of myths and lies that maybe we believe in that have snuck in, a power of a story. We've kind of like maybe like rounded off the edges of our faith. But this morning we have a chance to let go, a marker of like, man, I just, I just want to be about what Jesus is about. Holy Spirit, work in the hearts of my mind, of our mind my friends' minds and hearts. Friends, I, I, uh, I, I can't preach this without telling you, God, Jesus did a lot of hard work in me this week. I asked him, reveal the myths and stories that I'm believing, and there they came. <laughs> so he let them go. So this morning, even as sitting in your seat, if, you just, if you've never come to Jesus before, you've never accepted him, Jesus, I accept you into my life as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died and rose again for me. You took my place on the cross. You could be sitting here this morning and you've believed that for decades. Yet myths and ideologies and storylines have invaded that and you've, you have a lot of buts. You're like, yeah, this, but but this or and this or whatever it is. If it's not something Jesus has promised, let it go because there's no power in it. It's your own storyline. It's your own thing you've brought in. And I do that a lot. I've done that a lot. It leads you to dark places. Father, we thank you. Amen. I invite you to stand and let me read the same prayer from Paul that I read last week to you. It comes from Colossians. And we pray this, in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, go out this week and live as a forgiven child of God. God bless you. I usually sit right over here if you want to come by and say hi or pray, whatever. God bless you. Have a great, great week.